The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. I'm going to introduce Caroline Jones. So Caroline has spoken with us a number of times, so I'm sure some of you have heard from her, but she gets requested again and again every year because everybody just loves the wisdom that God has bestowed upon her that she can share with us. So I'm just going to introduce her briefly. Um, Caroline is a biblical counselor working with Cedar Cove. She mostly works with children and families. For over 30 years, she was a teacher and school administrator and has worked with children of all ages. She is married to Spencer for 46 years, has two daughters, five grandchildren. In her spare time, she likes to knit, walk her dog, and paint colorful mandalas. So let's welcome Caroline. Father God, we just thank you for Caroline and the gifts that you have given her, God, and the ways she has used them to um, just reach so many people, especially children and families. God, we thank you for her and her words that she has to share with us today. May she just be filled with your spirit for what you want for her to share. In your name I pray, amen. So hello, everyone. It's really nice to be back. I always look forward to my times um, coming up to Bethlehem. I attended church here for a number of years, and I don't. Maybe some of you don't know this, but um, <clears throat> we came to Bethlehem in 2002, and the reason we came to Bethlehem was because our family was really broken, like irreparably. It felt broken, and uh, my husband and I walked in the door. And we sat in the back of the church for a long time, and we didn't want anyone to talk to us. We didn't want to introduce ourselves to anyone. We just needed to heal. And John Piper was going through Romans at the time, and he was speaking about the sovereignty of God, which we both knew about, but oh, how we needed to be reminded of it. And we sat under that teaching, and God slowly healed our hearts. And by his grace, he healed our family. And, and today, we're all different people than we were back then. So um, it's good to be here, and it always fills me with a little emotion when I come back to Bethlehem because of my own story. So today, we're going to take a look at um, connecting with our children's hearts. So what I've done, actually, with this talk is I've combined two talks that I had prepared. Um, one I'd half prepared and the other I'd, I'd finished and couldn't give because of COVID. And I've never had a chance to give this talk and I always thought it was really sweet. So I'm so excited to share it with you today. So let's talk about connecting with our children's hearts. So our children are enslaved to sin. The first family had a homicide in it. And the problem really is that the problem is indwelling sin. Our children need Jesus. Sin has made parenting way more difficult in raising children. At every age, kids need affection, comfort, and guidance. They need safety and protection. They need help with their anxieties. They need comfort when they're hurting. They need understanding when they make mistakes. They need us to set limits and boundaries for them. They need us to connect with them emotionally often. They, the heart of parenting is being there when it really counts. And of course, above all, our children need Jesus. Now, I loved the songs we sang today. And that first one, 
really could be all about parenting, couldn't it? You know, <laughs> did you did you did you identify with some of those lines in there? I can't remember any of them now; they won't come to my mind. But in you know, in um, just how many times we've sinned, how many times we've fallen, how many times we've we've been disappointed in ourselves, but for us, God's mercy is always more. It's always there. And then that beautiful line that said in the, in the in one of the other songs that said, we'll be standing in his favor. And I want to say at the very beginning of this talk, you are standing in his favor. You will be when you meet him face to face and you'll need to, Right? That's the whole promise of Psalm 91. But right now, you are standing in his favor. And if you ever felt that you weren't, you've got it wrong. God is pleased with you, his children. And when you fall and when you fail, which you will over and over again, his arms are open wide. Don't you notice that when you fall, what do you want to do? You want to run the other way, right? You don't want to run to him. But Jesus is standing there with open arms and he's saying, come to me because now you need me more than ever. Don't run away, right? So remember that. That's important. For some reason or other, this slide takes a long time to change and I haven't been able to figure out why. <laughs> so, you know, children really do need parents and all of these points here are super important. There we go. So what does it look like to love your child? Well, first of all, when you love your child like Jesus does, your child feels loved unconditionally. And your child also sees you as a final authority figure in the home. And remember that parents who set limits have, really have to enforce them because their kids are less likely to test them. But if you don't set any limits, your kids are going to test you all the time. And wise parents set limits without threats or lectures. Think about Jesus, God in the garden. You may eat of any tree in the garden except the one that's the tree of the good of knowledge and evil. Of that tree you may not eat or you will die. Very clear limit, right? Very clear boundary. Nothing ambiguous about that. But there were no threats. And when they did eat, what did God say? What is this that you have done? That was it. He didn't stand there wagging his finger and yelling and making all kinds of threats. I mean, God is the archetypical father. He shows us how to do parenting. So we're going to look today at four ways that, I think maybe it's five ways that we tend to do parenting. And we're going to contrast them with what it would look like if we did parenting God's way. So first of all, what drives your parenting? Is it technique or trust? Is it fear or faith? Is it guilt or grace? Is it reputation or rest? So if it's technique, you'll look like this woman here. <laughs> we'll be filling our heads with the latest trends, both secular and religious, and we'll compare ourselves constantly to others. We'll implement false boundaries and controls, and we'll live by the law, not by grace, and we'll be driven to perform if we live by technique, if we parent by technique. So what would trust look like? So God is our provision. 
We have a guide to help us and a savior. Psalm 59, O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. This was my radiation scripture. God showed it to me the first day I went to the Northfield Radiation Center as I was sitting in my car, a little scared about going in. And and God said to me, I'm going to meet you, Caroline. And every day I went in, I knew I was coming to meet my God. He was my strength. He was the one who was going to protect me through it all. It was beautiful. I, I never feared really after that. There's another story I'll tell you another time, but... We live, if we're living by trust, we live before an audience of one and he's pleased with us. Whoops. Um, And our heavenly father is in control, not us. Now we know that the law brings wrath, but grace abounds all the more. And if we live by trust, no performance is needed. The verdict is in and we are enough because Jesus is enough. So wonderful promises there to us about how to live by trust. How about if you, if you parent through fear? Well, anxiety will rule your life. You'll hover, shelter, control. You'll keep your kids close. You'll constantly be monitoring them. We call these parents helicopter parents. You probably heard that phrase. Our imaginations will torment us. And did you know this? That there is no grace for our imaginations. There's grace for the moment, there's grace for the trial, there's grace for the suffering, there's grace for the difficulty, but no grace for our imaginations. But yet, if we live by fear, our imaginations become huge. And we will make our children live by rules and what-ifs. So, I'm I'm sure you can imagine the parent who lives by fear and how... I, I know that my mother lived this way. And did you know that children learn to fear from their families? We teach them how to fear. Now, some things they do have to fear, like the freeway and stuff like that, and bad people. But Lisa Pisha, who's a family therapist, said, we learn how to handle fear and what to be afraid of from our family. So we need to encourage our children with wisdom rather than motivating them with fear. Overprotective or helicopter parents thwart a child's psychological need for autonomy and competence. This leads to increased depression and lower life satisfaction for our kids. It tends to lower their ability to use the executive functioning part of their brains, which can lead to an inability to set and reach goals. That's really an important statement. When we overprotect our children, we don't give them any chance to learn. We don't give them any chance to discover and to put into practice the things we've taught them. And in actual fact, it tends to discourage their development and their growth. So my word to you is, I don't know who said this. It wasn't me. I wish I was smart enough to have said this. But the greatest tranquilizer for our fear is found at the throne. So if you're a fearful parent, get on your knees Get before the throne. Go into the throne room and sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him. And he will calm your fears. So what does it look like to parent by faith? Well, our parenting is driven by faith in God and not in fear. 
We know that there's no grace for our imaginations, but there is grace for today. When our, fear, our, when our fears drive us to control, we run to our refuge for comfort and help. And we've learned the manna principle. We know that there's enough trouble for today. We don't need to add to it. We don't need to bring tomorrow's trouble into today. Um, we can leave everything in God's hands. And when we live by faith, we communicate this trust to our children. And we model for them how to live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith, Habakkuk. And then your verse, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So how about if we parent by guilt? How many people in here feel guilty a lot of the time? <laughs> okay, I'm going to put my hand up too. I'm the daughter of an Irish mother. We were born to be guilty. Irish mothers are the best at making you feel guilty. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I know I've done this to my own girls as well. So let's talk about it. When we parent this way, we are constantly feeling guilty of not doing enough, being enough, having enough, right? Our law rules our life, not grace, and we project our guilt onto our children, driving them from grace. And our failures, which are inevitable, crush us and fill us with guilt. So what does grace look like? Grace is something we receive. We have to know that we need it. And grace is the opposite of legalism, which grows self-condemnation, pride, fear, and bitterness. You'll never be enough. If you don't know that, by the way, there you are today. If that's all you learned today, that's good. You'll never be enough because Jesus was enough. And I may have told this story before, but one of my daughters had a very bad eating disorder. Um, and that was part of our brokenness when we came to Bethlehem in 2002. Um, God has done a beautiful, gracious work in her life, and she's so healthy and well and gorgeous and following him. Praise his name. But as um, she was coming out of the eating disorder, I was actually taking my counseling training with CCEF, and I had to interview somebody who'd had an eating disorder, so I had someone in my family. So I interviewed her, and I said to her, one of the questions was, what was it that brought you out of the eating disorder? Because in case you don't know, the eating disorder is like a, a circle. There's a cycle, and it's a cycle that's unbelievably hard to break like just incredibly hard to break. And there are certain things that will break that circle. And one of those things is um, pregnancy. And that's what happened to my daughter. But that's only part of the story. So I said to her, you know, what was it really that brought you out of the eating disorder? And this is what she said to me. She said, Mom, I figured out that I would never be pretty enough. I'd never be skinny enough. I'd never be smart enough. I'd never be popular enough. I just couldn't do any of this. I could never be enough. But I knew that Jesus was enough. Amen? I did something right, <laughs> right as a parent. I taught her that Jesus was enough. I made lots of mistakes. That was God's grace in that moment. Now, we do have to be careful when we talk about parenting by grace. Because we're not going to be just pushovers, right? It's not about not noticing evil. It's not about not correcting wrongdoings. It's, it's not about that at all. What we really want to remember is that everything we do, and God's grace to us comes to us because of mercy, not merit. So it's not about being good enough or doing enough. 
But, but our, but God's grace is only received when we give ourselves up to death, including the death of trying to be good on our own. Salvation is from the Lord. We want, we want to be showing that to our children. So when they fall and fail and we help them and help them kind of get up and go on with things, we don't want to take the glory for that. We want to make sure that it's because we're looking to the Lord and his mercy is great to us and his grace is free. So for a minute, what is grace? Well, grace these are some, I thought, some very good quotes about what grace is. B.B. Garfield says, free sovereign grace to the ill-deserving, free sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. And John Stott said, it's love that cares and stoops and rescues. Do you see the parenting implications there? Right? That's what we do all the time. And by the way, that's what our Heavenly Father did. In Hosea, he says, I bent down. And I took the yoke off their, his jaw, speaking of Ephraim, and I fed him. Almighty God, the sovereign, eternal, almighty God, stooped to feed his son Ephraim, take the yoke off his jaw. That's our job as parents. That's the model that we're going to be following um, Jerry Bridges says, grace is God reaching downward to people who are in rebellion against him. And whoever Paul, oh, I spelled that wrong, I'm sorry. Paul Zoll said, it's unconditional love toward a person who does not deserve it. So it's the opposite of karma, which is getting what you deserve. If you live a good life, good stuff happens. If you live a bad life, bad stuff happens. This is about mercy, not merit. So how about if you parent by reputation? And she looks like that's probably what she's doing. <laughs> Comparison will rule your life. You will live before an audience of peers and critics, and they are not kind. When you live before the audience of one, what's extended to you is sovereign and almighty kindness. But your peers and your critics don't offer kindness. You know that. We'll always be running, busy, and driven. We'll be slaves to what others think of us, and we'll live under a harsh taskmaster. So the opposite of living by reputation is living by rest. This is my favorite topic, by the way. What does it mean to rest in the Lord? Well, it means we live before the face of God, not the face of other people. We live before an audience of one who's pleased with us. We are at rest. We have time for others and we have time for Jesus. Do you ever notice how perfectionists never have any time? Now, I'm a recovering perfectionist, so I know this to be true. We never have any time for anyone because we're so busy just saving the world and doing everything the right way. When God comes in and heals you of that, you suddenly have time for other people. And you have time to include other people in your life because it's not all about you anymore. It's about others. It's about pleasing the Lord. Um, and we have time for Jesus. And we sleep restfully. We go to bed and we're not tormented as we're falling asleep about all the things we didn't get right and all the things we didn't do. Because the heart of the matter is that all perfectionists know that they're not perfect. Did you know that? <laughs> like, we really do know. We know we're not perfect. We're putting on a face. We're pretending to be perfect because that actually feels safer to us than letting people know we're not perfect. But we're not perfect and uh, we really mess up all the time. And if you think, you know, oh, that Caroline, she always looks so put together. She is not at all put together. She is a mess a lot of the time. <laughs> 
<laughs> Very broken. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But when we're living by rest and parenting by rest, we're authentic. There's no pretending. And humility marks us. And we're enjoying the grace of a new master because we know we're loved and accepted. So there's, a, I think, a pretty good foundation for like how we want to be as we parent, what's important in our parenting. Let's now start looking at parenting. So you recognize this, I'm sure. This is the work of Jim and Lynn Johnson, uh, Jackson, and everything they do is wonderful. They say that this triangle exists. And at the very top of the triangle, you'll notice is the word correction. And that's the smallest part of the triangle, right? Um, and so obviously they're saying correction shouldn't be the biggest part of our parenting. But they say that in America, we've kind of turned this upside down and our parenting triangle kind of rests on the peak where all we do is correct and we do it very, very quickly. And their whole point, if they never said anything else, what they say is connect first, correct later. We tend to do it the other way around or else we correct and we don't even bother connecting. So they say the foundation of our parenting should be you are safe with me. We are going, we're going to create as parents homes where our children feel safe. They feel loved. They feel accepted regardless of what they're like, regardless of how good they are or how naughty they are. We're just going to love them unconditionally and without stopping. And I remember when our daughter was getting over her eating disorder, when she first of all went into counselling, we went to see the counsellor. And we said to the counsellor, is there anything we can do? And the counsellor looked at us both and she didn't know who she was talking to. And she said, you could just love her extravagantly. And I thought, I can do that. Yeah, I know how to do that. I can do that. So that's what we did. Just extravagantly loved her. Um, and with God's grace and the Spirit's work, you know, the Lord really did a, a wonderful thing. So we want that kind of foundation in our families of safety and respect and care and love and gentleness and patience and kindness and goodness, all the fruits of the Spirit, right? You recognize them. Um, we want that. And then when our children are naughty, when they fail, we can move into connecting with them first, which just means saying, sweetheart, I you did something wrong, but I, I know that you probably didn't even know that's what you were doing. Let's talk about this it's instead of, you know, first of coming down as the letter of the law. Now, there are many ways to do that. So people sometimes say, how do I connect first? And we'll talk about that as we go on here. So this is what the connection cycle looks like. And you could pretty much start anywhere here, but we'll start at the top with comfort. That's what we've just been talking about, right? So when our children are hurting, when our children are angry, when our children are distressed, the first thing we want to do is move in to comfort them. It might sound like, wow, I can see that you're very angry right now. I wonder what in the world has happened, but I'm here. I want to help you with this. Comfort, right? Then we move on to validation. So that sounds like this. She said, what to you? What a mean thing to say. If somebody said that to me, I would probably be really angry too. I can understand why you feel this angry. You're validating the feeling. What do we do? Typically, we say, oh, don't feel angry. Or don't be upset. Don't cry. 
No, 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 no. We want to move into the feeling with our children and validate the feeling. Let them know we know that you're frustrated, we know you're angry, we know you're hurt, and we're sorry. And it's a real feeling. One of my, I counsel a family, of, and there's two teenagers in the family, and one day they were, the whole family was in the car, and um, one of the children got really upset and was crying and crying and crying. And the parents were doing the typical, uh, you know, settle down, it's not that bad, you know, just calm down. And the sister said, you know what? Your feelings are valid. I was like, good. Uh, the parents told me this. And the parents both said, that just made us stop. And he calmed down almost immediately. It was like he realized, you know, my feelings in this moment are valid. So that can be hugely healing for your children. Then the other next step is listen. Listen to your children. I could probably make money on this, but I would probably guess that most parents speak way, way more than they listen. I know I did. Um, make your words be few. Listen more than you speak. And particularly when your children are hurting, when they're angry, when they're upset, when they've done something wrong, listen, listen, listen. And then reflect back to them. You know, you actually are a mirror for your children. They can't see themselves. They can't see their misbehavior. They can't see their meltdowns. They can't see their responses. But you can act as a mirror for them. So, they, so you're reflecting back to them what you see. Oh, my goodness me, how angry you must be. You broke your sister's toy. Oh, that tells me you're very angry. I think we need to talk about this, that kind of a response. So let's talk for a second about your child's amazing brain. Um, we have to walk very carefully when we think about this. And those of you who have heard me speak about children with loud emotions know that I always go here because this is really important if you have a child who has loud emotions because there's stuff going on in both our bodies and our hearts. And that's what we're going to really look at today. We want to listen carefully to science, but we're going to have clear biblical categories for our children. And we want to recognize that our children are embodied souls. Now, what that means is they are souls within a body. Very simple. And that means that all the hard things that come at their body are going to press hard on their soul or their heart. And all the hard things that are pressing hard on their heart are going to show up in their bodies. So when a child has been humiliated by friends, bullied, that child may come home and throw things and kick and swear and do all kinds of things like you just never expected to see. And if you're smart, you'll look behind all of that to what's going on in his heart. And I'm going to show you how to do that today. So look at this quote. The idea of an immaterial mind, now you can translate that to soul because that's what it means. The idea of an immaterial mind controlling the body has no place in science. Now, we're always told in America to follow the science, right? This time we do not want to follow the science because the science is wrong, right? <laughs> we are not just bodies and brains. We have a soul, an eternal soul, and so much of what happens in our bodies comes directly from there. We'll talk about that. So heart and body are two and one. And this unity suggests that the heart and spirit will always be expressed or represented in the brain's chemical activity. 
So, when we choose good or we choose evil, such decisions will be accompanied by changes in brain activity. Now, that is some science you can trust because that's true, right? We're embodied, so embodied souls. Our bodies function not just as a vehicle to an independent soul that drives them, but more like a canvas and paint embodying the ideas of an artist. I just love that. So when your child is acting out and being naughty, think the artist is painting his canvas because that's what he's doing. You're seeing what's going on in here as though you were seeing an artist paint a picture on a canvas. Now, if you remember that metaphor and that image, that may help you slow down when it comes to responding to your children. I thought that was really beautiful. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the dynamic heart. Jeremy Pierre has written a book called The Dynamic Heart in, I think it's in everyday life, but it's really good. So this is what he says. He says, the heart operates like an icy mountain cap. Now, in a minute, we're going to talk about what's going on in the heart, but then the sun shines down on the icy mountain cap, and what happens to us, happens to it, is it melts. And the water that's melting from the icy mountain cap flows down into the valley. Now, the metaphor goes like this. The icy mountain cap is your child's heart. The sun shining on your child's heart are the trials or troubles, the bullying, the humiliation, the disappointment, the whatever it is, shining on your child's heart. And what's melting into water down into the valley is your child's behavior. And you are the valley, your family's the valley. And guess what you see? You see the water, right? <laughs> you forget all about the icy mountain cap because you see the water. And if it you know, if the water is dirty, which it kind of is when our kids are melting down, right? Um, that seems to take our preoccupation. So, so Jeremy Pierre says, the flowing river represents the active, fun active uh, responses of each function of the heart. So there, you have a little, uh, a little visual on your table. And if you grab one of those each, we'll take a look at it. So there are three functions to our hearts. And this is a biblical definition of heart or soul, right? Three functions. Uh, there's beliefs, there's desires, and there's choices or actions, right? So, so what happens is... Um, The flowing river represents the active responses, the interpretations, the feelings, and the choices that instinctively flow out into the situation. The frozen mountain peaks water the valley below when it thaws. But people are always paying close attention to the streaming river, often not realizing that if the water that flows into the valley is problematic, they should pay attention to the icy peaks, right? People are usually more aware of the surface expression of the hearts than the deeper commitments. So in short, your child's behavior reveals her dynamic heart, but she's totally unaware of it. When it thaws, you, the, the family down in the valley, feel the results, her bad behavior. Often you are unaware too, because what you see and concentrate on is the flowing river, not the icy mountain cap, which is the actual heart. So think about Cain and Abel. Cain didn't get what he wanted, and in a fit of jealous rage, he killed his brother. Or think about Aaron. 
Aaron was afraid of what the people were saying. The people were angry. They wanted a deliverer. So he created the golden calf. And you see how there was there were thoughts operating there, desires operating. Cain, or, uh, excuse me, Aaron is listening to what the people say and he's making interpretations based on what they say. He wants to be liked by them. He doesn't want to be criticized by them. So he goes and makes the golden calf. Cain wants God's favor and he sees his brother got it, but he wanted it and that hurts. And that not only hurt him, but made him really angry. So what did he do? Killed his brother. Do you see how it works? Is that clear? Okay. So the Bible, so Pierre says that people do not sin one dimensionally. We sin in three dimensions. We sin in three dimensions, right? And the Bible consistently addresses our darkened understanding, that's the top of the triangle, our fleshly and corrupted desires, and the choices we make toward willful disobedience and lack of submission. So you see what's happening here with your child. Your child is sinning three-dimensionally when your child disobeys or rebels or is defiant against you, right? So let's dig a little deeper. Let's talk about understanding behavior. Behavior is communication. All behavior has meaning, and we need to look beneath the words and actions. So visual behaviors are a clue to hidden emotions, invisible emotions. Visible behaviors are a clue to invisible emotions. So that, that simply means that mad, I'm so mad, is often, not always, but often a cover-up for I'm sad or hurt, right? And sad or acting out often means, acting out often means I'm hurting inside. So it's good to ask yourself, is the behavior unusual that I'm seeing? Does the child need affection? Does the child need to engage with me? Is my child hungry, tired, or feeling overwhelmed? Is this a sensory issue? But remember that any time that you react calmly with curiosity, you may discover what triggered the behavior. So ask yourself, what happened to cause this overreaction and respond to that? Not the behavior that you see. Are you following me? Ask, what caused this? What, what was going on that created this three-dimensional sinning? And that's what you go after. So if your child is being bullied and your child comes home from school every day and your child is furiously angry and acting out all the time, if all you're responding to is his naughty behavior, you're really missing the point. Like the father who um, found that his daughter had been cutting and in, in, a, in a fit of parental fear, and I understand this, this is a very hard thing to see, he sort of pinned his daughter down and started mopping the blood and dealing with the, with the, 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 the bleeding that he saw. All the time missing that that sign on her arm was about inside hurts, right? He just went for the outside, what he could see, and he 
totally missed the inside hurts. Now, when I sat down with that dad and explained that to him, he just wept. It was like, oh, I didn't know. So remember, all behavior has meaning. All behavior is some kind of communication. And I say to parents when I'm working with active self-injurers, every cut on your child's body is like a post-it note. And there's a message on it. And your job is to find out what that message is. Of course, we want to stop the cutting. Right? That goes without saying. But we won't spend most of our time there. We'll deal with that right away. And then we're going after those deeper hurts. So how do you dig deeper? Well, be curious and friendly. Pick a good time. Don't pick a time when they're tired or hungry. You're not going to have any success there. And begin with the magic words. Now, who knows the magic words? Oh, nobody Oh dear. Okay, you won't forget them the next time. The magic words are, I wonder. That's how you begin your sentences. I wonder what happened at school today. Not, you can't come in here and be that angry. That's so disrespectful. I wonder what happened at school today. You seem very upset. Now, that's tentative language. And you can be an authoritative parent and use tentative language. I promise you, it works really, really well. And these two words, I wonder, work marvelously with teenagers. And you can be really flippant. You can be really like off, you know, just like, I wonder what happened at school today. You just, you're really mad. You know, you can, you can be like that or you can, you can be. But anyway, whatever way you say it, it's warm and it's inviting. And it doesn't assume that they've been naughty. Uh, because if you assume that, it's going to make your children defensive. When you begin your conversation with, I wonder, you are not judging or making accusations. You're just leaving the door open for your child to share. It's tentative, inviting, and you don't sound like the expert. And I know you want to sound like the expert. <laughs> we all do. We all want our children to know we're expert parents. We really know. But actually, we actually don't want our children to know that. We want our children to know that we're kind, sympathetic, understanding, patient, listening parents. When they're older, they'll turn around and tell you what a wonderful parent you were, right? They'll tell you you were the expert. My girls say that to me now, and I'm like, you've forgotten a lot. <laughs> you have forgotten so much. Like, no, mom, you were a wonderful parent. And I'm, I can remember times when I'd be embarrassed to tell you some of the things I did. But seriously, you know, we do want to appear as the expert. We do want to be, appear as the one who knows everything. And what does that do, especially with your teenagers? The walls just go up all over the place. They don't need another expert in their life. What they need is someone who's willing to listen, who's willing to actually ask them their opinion. I heard just recently a counsellor telling a father, you need to have no opinions for the next two to four years with your children. I was like, that's what I need to hear. So I've been going to the Lord. I've been saying, okay, Lord, I think that's really wise advice. I have a 40-year-old and a 43-year-old. And neither of them have ever heard me speak. <laughs> Isn't that funny? <laughs> um, actually, one of them came once to, to one of my talks. Um, I find that really interesting. And I, I, I think it's, 
I, I could pr come up with lots of reasons why, but but I actually want to be that parent who who's not always giving my opinion. So I have learned to say to my girls, would you like to know what I think about that? And they are free to say no, and they know that, you know. Or we, you know, I have some thoughts about that. If you ever want to hear about them, I'd be happy to share them. That's kind of the approach I use. But I think it's it's good for us to to think about being more tentative with our children and leaving the door open for them to talk. So we're going to look for the hurt behind the words. We're not going to ignore a child's feelings, and we're not going to try to talk them out of their feelings. We are going to ask neutral questions. And asking questions helps your child to feel heard. Now, here are some quick little tips for parenting. We've done sort of the groundwork. Oh, excuse me. We've done the groundwork now. Now let's be a little bit more practical. So be consistent, but not rigid. Consistency means everybody knows what to expect. Rigidity is unswerving devotion to rules without thinking them through and not changing them as the child develops. I've seen some families who have the same rules for their children at 14 as they did at four. And that's not smart, right? Your children are changing and growing. You're not going to have the same rules for your child at 14 as you'll have at 18 or 19, right? We change as our children develop. We should. Now, you may find in your family that maybe you're the flexible one and your husband is the rigid one, right? I see some nodding heads. <laughs> or you may, it may be the other way around. You may be the rigid one and he may be the flexible one. This is always a problem in marriages, right? So if that is the case in your family, find a time to talk about that and find a time to talk about what does consistency look like as opposed to rigidity and which would be better. And I can promise you that consistency is better than rigidity because rigidity basically says there's one way to do things, there's one way to respond. And I've learned in all of my years of working with children and families, there is never just one way to respond. There is never just one way to do it. And I've ha I have so many parents come up to me after I speak and say, well, thank you so much for saying that because I have six children and I have to parent them all differently. Or else they come up and they say, now when I talk about children with loud emotions, they say, now I know why everything I'm doing with my child doesn't work. They, and parents come to me for counselling and they say, we've tried everything. We've done everything we've done with our other children and not, none of it is working. And I say, okay, and so what do you think you should do now? You know what the definition of insanity is? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. We have to change, right? So be consistent, but not rigid. Set clear, consistent limits. Set a few clear family rules. Now, oftentimes when I work with a family, one of my first homework exercises for them is to send them home and say, go home, and the two of you get together and if the children are old enough, I get them to include the children and make about four family rules. You don't need anything more than three or four. And then make a poster and put them up and just hold everyone in the family to those rules. And most parents come back and say, thank you so much for asking us to do this because it really made us think about what's important in our family. And I've learned that when you do this with your children, the children have some buy-in because they may come up with something that you don't think about, but you realize, hey, that's a really good idea. Let's put that on there too. Some families paint the children's hands and get them to put their hand marks around all the rules and we're all agreeing about this and that's 
that's the perfect setup, but it doesn't always work that way. So how about this? How do you communicate with your child? So you want to communicate comfort by things like, I'm here, it's okay, you're safe. You want to validate, this is the connection cycle if you're remembering, you want to validate their feelings by, I get you, I see, I might feel the same way. You want to stop talking and listen, don't lecture, chase the why, don't argue or defend yourself, and I was so good at that especially when I'd made a mistake. And the best thing when you've made a mistake is just to say, sweetheart, I'm so sorry. I was so impatient with you. And you don't say, it's because I didn't get a good night's sleep. You don't add that. Or it's because your daddy upset me before he left. Don't. Defend yourself. Just say, I'm so sorry. I was very impatient with you. Will you forgive me? And when you do that, uh, you image your heavenly father. And reflect what you hear. This calms and heals and says that they have your attention. So balance, nurture, and structure. Adults need to be in charge. So now structure is uh, rules that help or a situation that helps kids feel safe and secure. And nurture is warmth, affection, kindness, love, and encouragement. All of us fall on one side or the other. Who here says in your parenting you fall on the nurture side? Who here says, in my parenting, I fall on the structure side? So it's kind of half and half. So the good news is we need both, right? And what works best is when you have a balance of both, when you balance nurture and, and um, structure. And again, your husband's probably fall on a different side than you. He may be the structure guy and you may be the nurture guy. And he says to you, you're always hugging and kissing her and you're not firm enough. You need to set some boundaries. You need to make some rules. Again, you just have to work that out together. You need both. Try not to lean to one side or the other. However, I will say, in, and we'll talk about this the next time I'm here, in some situations, it's better to lean to one side than the other. I'll give you one example. If you have a child who has ADHD, diagnosed with ADHD, which do you think you need to lean on, structure or nurture? Structure, yeah. That's a child who definitely needs to know the boundaries. Really clearly, you're going to be stating them over and over and over again. Right. So here is another one. Respond, don't react. So what you want to be in your home is you want to be a thermostat, not a thermometer. So a thermometer responds to the temperature, but a thermostat sets the temperature. And you don't want to be always responding to the temperature in your home because it'll be all over the place. It'll be high and low and middle, and you'll be, you'll be, worn out if you're constantly responding to the temperature. You want to be the one who sets the temperature in your home. You're going to be like the thermostat. The, and that comes, brings us back to consistency. It brings us back to structure. It brings us back to rule, setting some rules and limits and expectations. So be thoughtful and respond out of your wise heart. Be a thermostat all the time. So when your older kid comes in and says, uh, I got suspended from school for a week, you need to be a thermostat, not a thermometer. And I guarantee you're going to go like that. And that's your moment to say, I got to be a thermostat. Breathe. And what might you say if that happened? Somebody give me a, 
I wonder what happened. Yes, I love it. Very good. <laughs> I wonder what happened. I wonder what you did. Instead of, I can't believe you're disgracing our family. You know, I mean, we all, that's where we go. That's the place we... You're disgracing me. You're disgracing my motherhood. Right. So I wonder what happened. So take a breath and respond with intention. Don't act out of anger. Give choices. Provide calm strength and structure. Make choices that preserve your relationship and be role models of how you want your child to behave. Now, what about this one? Use a side swipe. I don't mean this. Kind of <laughs> I do not mean that. So in case you thought that's what it was, you're like, boy, this is a really weird parenting talk. <laughs> but a side swipe is a comment that's less direct and confrontational. So it might look like this. Um, it's 10 to 5 and dinner is bubbling on the stove and you're very proud of the dinner you've made and you're so excited to serve this new curry or whatever it is to your family and your kid comes into the kitchen and says, I want a snack. <laughs> and your immediate response is no. Dinner's on the stove. I'm just about to serve dinner, and it's a really nice dinner. Um, that's very direct, and that's probably going to result in some kind of a meltdown or some kind of really angry outburst. Instead, you say, oh, thanks for telling me. Yes, we'll get one as soon as you've finished eating your dinner tonight. Or you might say something like, hey, what a great idea. And I went to the store yesterday, and I've got some new snacks. Let's have dinner first, and then you can choose whichever one you want. Now, you end up with a compliant child when you respond that way, right? So I spend a lot of time teaching parents how not to say no, but to say no, right? How to say no with actually without using the word no. Or it might look like this. I want to go out and play. And mom says, oh, yes, it's a beautiful day outside, but we need to do homework first. After the homework's done, let's go out. So come on, let's get it done fast first. So that's a side swipe rather than really directional. You kind of, it's not taking the easy way out, but it's the gentler response. I think this is a very helpful hint. Um, it can be really good with teenagers as well, um, but it's certainly good with little kids because it, it, it's, you know, if you say something like, after dinner, you can choose whatever snack you want from the basket. You know, you, now you've given them a choice and children love to have choice um, and children love not to feel sort of backed into a corner. So I, I, I work with, a, with some older teens who are on the autism spectrum and um, I, I said to one of them one day, let's see if we can figure out a metaphor for how you feel about your relationship with your mom. He's like, okay. So I said, well, could it be there's the tentative, right? Could it be that you feel this way? And he's like, no. Um, I can't remember what I said. And so I, 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 have, I attempted to. And then I said, I wonder if it could be that you, when your mom comes after you and says, you haven't picked up this and you need to pick up that and you need to get that done before you leave, do you feel like you're sort of backed into a corner? It's like, Yeah. I said, do you feel like an animal that's kind of caged in? He's like, yes. Now, think about it. You're 18, you're male, and you're on the autism spectrum, and you feel like you're stuck in a corner with somebody yelling at you. How are you going to respond to that? Not very nicely, 
really badly, right? So I said to him, your homework now is go home and tell your mom. Say, mom. Now I said, you won't be surprised to hear this. I said, pick your moment to do it. Don't do it when she's busy. Don't do it when she's mad. Do it when you're having a nice, quiet moment together. Maybe you see she's sitting down, resting, and you say, hey, mom, could I make you a cup of tea? And she says, yeah, I'd love a cup of tea. And you bring your cup of tea in and you say, you know, Caroline and I were talking a little bit about my feelings and I wanted to share something with you. I said, I knew his mom. I said, I guarantee if you approach your mom like that, she will listen and things will change. So as for giving consequences, don't flood your child with consequences. Fewer consequences mean that the ones you give are more likely to work. Children who are constantly being shouted consequences at them become numb to them and our relationship suffers. But sometimes you will have to say, stop doing this, we need to do this. So, um, Here are some authoritative parenting tips. We'll go through them quickly. Listen to your child. Validate your child's emotions. You'll recognize these in everything I've said. Set clear and consistent limits. Do not give multiple warnings. How many times have you heard the mom say, if you do that again, blah de blah will happen and nothing happens. If you do that again, da-da-da-da-da. And I mean, we, we all do it. I've done it. I'll never forget the parent sitting in my office. This is years ago. <laughs> and she had her little one with her. Her other two children were in the school. And I was chatting with her about something. And her little one was kicking her. Right? I'm noticing this and I'm thinking... What's mom going to do? And mom says, thank you for not kicking me. I'm like, talk about a mixed message. <laughs> and she did that about four times. You know, thank you for not kicking me. And he kept kicking, of course. And I just eventually said, stop kicking your mommy. Mommies are not for kicking. And he stopped, probably. I just sounded maybe, <laughs> maybe a bit bossier. I don't think he had any respect for me. But, but, you know, be careful of those kind of things. Be careful of saying, this is the last time I'm going to tell you this. And then saying that again, <laughs> right? We need to be really uh, careful about multiple warnings. Use logical consequences. So, you know, announcing that your child is, is grounded for the next six months is really stupid. Because so are you right? <laughs> You're not going to be able to keep that consequence, but also it doesn't make a lot of sense. But if somebody's broken something, they have to fix it. If somebody's trashed the room, they have to pick it up. And it may be that you have to help them, but they have to do it. Logical consequences. Offer incentives, but be careful here. You can go nuts on incentives. Give choices. Balance freedom with responsibility. So that basically that means as your children get older, give more freedom. Your 14-year-old should have freedoms that your 7-year-old doesn't have. And your 18-year-old should have freedoms that your 14-year-old doesn't have. Now, I was the oldest in a family of two. And I'll tell you where this backfires. Because my parents were experimenting on me. They didn't know anything when they were raising me. And my sister got way more freedoms at 14 than I ever did. And I wasn't very happy about that, so be careful. Um, encourage self-regulation. And we'll talk more about that next week. But basically, our job as parents when our children are really little is to co-regulate with them. They're really upset and crying and angry. We come alongside and we help them to borrow our feelings and we help them to calm down. But we don't want to be doing that when they're 16. 
Like we really do want them to have learned something by then. We really want them to have learned how to calm themselves down, how to take a breath, how to breathe deeply before they yell at their sister and stuff like that. So encourage self-regulation. We'll talk more about that next week. And make sure your relationship with your child is healthy. So C.S. Lewis, you know, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and other things for children to read. And the uh, academics at Oxford, which is where he was a don, were very upset with him because they felt that he was lowering the academic standard of the university by writing for kids. You know who was the worst if this was J.R. Tolkien? <laughs> he didn't like the Chronicles of Narnia. He was very critical of them. But anyway, he did really good things, so we'll, we'll give him a break. <laughs> But um, C.S. Lewis needed to defend his position or he was going to lose his position at the university. So this is what he said. He said, you speak in propositions and people don't understand what you're talking about. I put propositions in stories, which is basically truth in context and even children can understand. Isn't that beautiful? Now, we want to be like that with our kids. We can go wah, 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 and it's just, this is what's happening. So we want to be able to speak truth in context to our children. So here are some ideas of how to do it. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it, and they are safe. This is a picture I keep on in my office, and I always show it to children. And with it, I tell them the story of the Irish. This is actually, I've stood at the bottom of that round tower. It's enormous. It, this doesn't do it justice. It's gigantic. And I tell them the story of how the Irish monks used to hide in there to get away from the Vikings. They love these stories. <laughs> but basically, you know, Jesus is for you and for your children a strong tower that you can run to. And then Psalm 91, you will hide me under your feathers and under your wings I will take refuge. I don't know any kid who doesn't love that metaphor. And I love it. Um, there's a story I read about firefighters who were going through a forest after there'd been a forest fire. And they came across the carcass of a chick, a, a bird of some kind, just basically still in sitting position. And one of the firefighters just took his stick and just poked it and out ran three little, little birds. It's the most beautiful story of what Jesus has done for us, right? He was burned on the cross for us, gave his life for us. And this little bird gave her life protecting her children. Now, that's a metaphor of your parenting, but it's also a metaphor of who Jesus is for you and your children in the hard work of parenting. And then, oh God, you are my fortress. You know, kids love pictures of of castles and things. And you can go on Google and just Google pictures of castles and they'll pop up and you can print them out and post them all over your house. Um, so we want to give our children boundaries and boundaries keep them safe. So think like this. They're not going to fall down the sand dune there. They're going to be safe. Boundaries keep them safe. As, you, as the Lord is your companion through life, so you are your child's companion and he is your child's companion. And when you come alongside particularly the teens without feeling appearing threatening but listening, um, you, you will become a wise parent to them and in their eyes. So Psalm 128 says, your children will be like olive trees around your table. You may not know this, but olive trees, as they're aging, 
um, send down shoots and new olive trees start popping up all around the trunk of the old tree that's now very old, right? So it becomes really big around because it's got basically all these trees growing up around it so that when there's a storm, it won't be blown over because the shoots are keeping it safe. Now, spiritually, this is part of why we have children, right? Because eventually, you know, our children are going to be there when I'm going to turn 70 this year. I'm glad I have two daughters who care about that, you know? Um, but, but, the, but the piece I like to remind myself is that the olive was, the olive tree was how they made oil for the temple lamps, right? And your children are going to be lights in the world, as you raise them to know and love Jesus, they, like the temple lamps, are going to lead others to know Christ. So remember that about your child. Your child is, is a very, very precious gift from the Lord, and there's great hope for your child if you ever feel despair. Then um, the word is going to be your friend. But I want to say uh, another quote. I have no idea who said it. Be a squatter at the throne of grace. So I said, the greatest tranquilizer for fear is at the throne. Now be a squatter at the throne of grace. Be on your knees praying for your children. And let the word be your friend. But please, please do not use the word like a weapon. Do not throw Bible verses at your children. I have children tell me, my dad yells at me when we're fighting. And he says, why can't you two be peaceful with one another? The fruit of the spirit is peace. <laughs> <laughs> that's my response. I'm like, really? And how do you feel about that? I said, well, that's crazy. He just yells Bible verses at us. And I'm like, hmm. I said, okay, I'll have a chat with your parent about that when I get a minute, which that's my job, by the way. <laughs> and then you're going to be broken bread for your children, like Jesus was for you. So last, last, your children are in very big safe, wise hands. You can trust them to your heavenly father. And we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Remember, your competency is God's rival in your parenting, right? So I'm looking around right now and I see probably about 26 lumps of clay and you're looking at a lump of clay, by the way, right? Remember, Isaiah went down to the house of the potter. He saw the potter making a vessel, and it, it wasn't good, and he broke it and did it again. And um, I, Isaiah then made some complaint to God about that. And God said, can I not do with you as this potter has done? Like clay in the potter's hands are you in my hands. And Romans 9 says, what is, can what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me this way? Job knew that he was clay. Um, Isaiah talks about you are the potter and we are the work of your hands. So I'm looking also at about 26 clay vessels that are broken with holes in them and cracks in them. And you're looking at one like that too. This is who we are, right? And I want to say to you, embrace that part of yourself. You'll never be the perfect mother. You'll never be the perfect parent. There's only one perfect parent, and it's not you. It's not me. <laughs> but embrace your brokenness because it's through the brokenness that his light can shine. So I know that parenting is really hard. 
uh, I know that parenting can be very hurtful. If your children have not already hurt you, they will someday. One of them, two of them, three of them, but they will hurt you. And it's very intense pain when it happens. Learn now in your young days to embrace your brokenness. I remember when th everything went south in our family, I said to the Lord one day, this is now the clay talking to the potter. This is a really good example. This is what I said. I said, why did you allow this, Lord? Everything was perfect before this happened. And very quietly, I heard my Savior say, really, Caroline? I was like, no, nothing was perfect. I had some funny idea that things were perfect. Nothing's ever perfect. But God takes brokenness and he uses it for his glory. He takes broken parents and he uses them for his glory in their kid's life. The best image you can show to your child is this one of the broken vessel. That's the best image you can show. So I'll be praying for you that, um, that the Lord does this work in your life, that you just yield to the potter. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ.